Tonight, we'll look at the historical and cultural context of Islam as it is practiced in Indonesia and the Philippines. We turn now to Suzanne Brenner, an associate professor of anthropology here at UCSD. She specializes in the study of gender and social change in Indonesia. Also with us, Vicente Rafael, a professor of communication at UCSD and a specialist in the politics and culture of the Philippines. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. So Suzanne, um, our viewers may not fully realize it, but uh, Indonesia has the largest Islamic population in the world. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how it got that way and uh, how Islam is involved in Indonesia and maybe the different varieties of Islam there? And then we'll work our way down to the present and talk about how this all is relevant to what's going on today. Few people know that Indonesia is actually the fourth largest country in the world in terms of population. Um, population now is about 230 million, of whom uh, close to 90% are Muslim, about 89%. Um, Islam has a long history in the region. Indonesia is a large uh, string of islands. It's an archipelago with about 14,000 islands. Um, of which probably about 6,000 are inhabited. And Islam um, originally came to the region through trade, primarily. It wasn't a conquest, it was trade. Um, this, for many years, um, the islands that are now called Indonesia were a crossroads of trade um, in Southeast Asia. There were people who came from the Middle East, people who came from other parts of Asia, India, um, Europeans eventually came to the region. And uh, Islam was introduced apparently through trade, um, probably through Indian traders who came to the region, uh, also Arab traders who came there. And um, the earliest evidence of Islam in the region dates roughly to the 13th century. In North Sumatra, there's, there's some preliminary evidence uh, of Islamization that some, some villages, some communities were already Muslim. Um, but it was a very gradual process uh, by which Islam spread into the other islands of the archipelago. Um, it, you know, it was a, a process of several hundred years. Um, much of Indonesia prior to that time had been uh, Buddhist, Hindu, or uh, animist, which is kind of spirit worship. And um, so it was a very gradual process by which um, Islam came to the region. Some people converted, some people mixed Islam with the local religions that they were already practicing. So it led to a, a kind of modified um, form of Islam and uh, gradually <clears throat> spread to the other islands. At this point, um, most of the islands of Indonesia are predominantly Muslim, with the exception of some islands in eastern Indonesia. Um, Bali, as many people know, is uh, predominantly Hindu, and um, some of the eastern islands of Indonesia are mostly Christian. You mentioned modified you know, versions of Islam. In what ways, maybe very briefly, is Islam different in Indonesia, say, than what you'd expect to find in the Middle East? Well, I think um, it's been characterized as a kind of moderate um, form of Islam. It's, um, I, I don't quite know how to say it, perhaps a, a gentler form of Islam than what's associated with the Middle East. Um, one way in which we see this is that um, the roles of women in, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia more broadly um, 
are, are somewhat different from what you find in the Middle East. Um, you find different kinds of gender relationships. Uh, women have been very active um, as traders in the market. There hasn't been a, a sharp division of public and private space the way you find in, in uh, Middle Eastern cultures. So one way in which you see the difference is that um, it hasn't had the same implications for gender relations in, uh, in Indonesia as it has um, in the Middle East. You don't find a very sort of sharp separation between the sexes the way you do there. Um, and generally, there's been a history of religious tolerance. Up until fairly recently, um, even though Indonesia was predominantly Muslim, um, there was a kind of acceptance of other religions. And this was um, codified, eventually codified into law when the, um, when the Republic of Indonesia was established in 1945, um, that there would be uh, tolerance for other religions. Uh, everybody was expected to believe in one God and to, um, to have some kind of religious belief, but it wasn't legislated that everybody had to be a Muslim, for example. Let's talk about comparisons and contrast between Indonesian Islam and that in the Philippines. How did it come to the Philippines? The Philippines presents an interesting contrast to Indonesia. Uh, first of all, Islam came to the Philippines mostly in the south uh, area called Sulu uh, and later on in Cotabato, which is in the larger, one of the larger islands in the, in the archipelago called Mindanao, uh, and came relatively late, uh, probably around the late 14th century. And uh, unlike Indonesia, only about 5% of the population is Muslim. Uh, historically, uh, Islam uh, in the Philippines has had to contend with uh, the predominant presence of Catholicism. As you know, close to 85% uh, of the country is Catholic and another 5% is uh, Protestant of some sort or the other. Uh, and there's a smaller minority that is you know, what you might call animist as well today, uh, indigenous populations in the area. Unlike Indonesia, uh, uh, the Philippines has never had a kind of Hindu-Buddhist uh, uh, overlay. In other words, there have been no classical kingdoms in the Philippines the way you have, for example, classical kingdoms, Javanese uh, classical kingdoms in, in Indonesia. Uh, and, and, and the Philippines, in some ways, has been uh, at the uh, uh, utter easternmost end of the spread of Islam. Consequences of this has been that uh, until very recently, actually until the 20th century, uh, uh, what you might call Islamization has been largely superficial, even in those areas that have historically felt the impact of Islam. You haven't had strong Islamic polities. You haven't had the strong influence of ulamas or Islamic clergies as you have in Indonesia. Uh, and by and large, Muslims in the Philippines, uh, certainly since the Spanish colonial period uh, from the 16th century onward, have been largely marginalized, if not despised, as a minority, uh, in part also because much of Islamic or much of Muslim economic existence uh, during the Spanish colonial period was based on the systematic uh, slaving and raiding of Christianized populations in the island Philippines. There's been this long uh, era. It's this, 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 this extended centuries of antagonism between Christians and Muslims uh, in, in, in a country very, very different from the Indonesian case. So there's been this antagonistic relationships in the in Philippines and less so in, in, in Indonesia, although recently we're getting to more polarization, antagonism. But perhaps you can talk a little bit uh, about more recent evolution of Islam in, in Indonesia and then later in the Philippines. That is, in the 1980s especially, you see uh, more revivals of Islamic practice and changes that are taking place. Could you speak a little bit about how that began to take place? Starting really in the early 1980s, 
there began to be a, a kind of um, resurgence of Islamic practice. I mean, every you know, people had been Muslim all along, but there was a kind of renewed interest in um, studying Arabic, in making the pilgrimage to Mecca, making the Hajj, um, in sending children to religious school. Um, some women began to wear Islamic dress, a kind of modern form of Islamic dress, which had not been uh, practiced in Indonesia prior to that time. And why do they do that? I mean, why, why th this change? Well, this was really, um, in large part, it was an outgrowth of the global Islamic movement, which really began in the Middle East, um, Places like uh, Egypt, Iran, um, the Iranian Revolution in 1979 had a real impact on uh, Muslim countries throughout the world. And um, what happened was that, um, in part through the influence of the mass media, you know, Muslims in Indonesia seeing what was going on um, in other parts of the Islamic world, especially in the Middle East, and also through um, kind of direct contacts between uh, Muslims who were studying abroad. Um, Muslims from Indonesia who were going to places like Malaysia or even the United States or Canada or Australia or the Middle East, um, they were studying not necessarily anything that had to do with religion per se, often engineering or some other um, subject, and they would meet Muslims from other countries and um, they would hear about the Islamic movements in, in the Middle East and in South Asia and so on uh, through these people and then they would come back to Indonesia and they would begin to um, introduce the idea of, of an Islamic resurgence, the idea that, um, that Indonesian Muslims were not practicing the true faith as they were supposed to be. And so, uh, you know, gradually it started mostly as a campus movement, uh, you know, among, uh, among students. students. And it, uh, it spread out to the wider population from there. How about in the Philippines? It, it, very interesting. Uh, if you read uh, Muslim historiography and Muslim historians, the prevailing assumption is that there's been a Muslim national identity uh, in the Philippines that stretches back uh, almost 400 years, that from the very beginning of Spanish colonization in the late 16th century to the present, that there's been this sort of pan-Islamic identity among those who have been converted to Islam. And in some ways, it's a, very, it's a very necessary myth that they have to assume as a way of mobilizing the population against uh, present conditions that they're experiencing right now, especially from the Philippine state. Uh, but the truth is, it's rather interesting, and again, this is a kind of contrast to Indonesia, is that uh, m Muslim identity, uh, because, because you have to realize that among the Islamicized populations in the Philippines, uh, you have 13 different ethno-linguistic groups, uh, and within those ethno-linguistic groups, lots and lots of differences, particularly class differences between elites and, 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 and ordinary uh, Muslims, uh, all of which have different relationships to, to Islam. Uh, but the insistence on unity on the part of the, of the Moro nationalists actually began, ironically, during the American colonial period. And if you, look at, if you look at the history of the Philippines, it was actually American colonialism that encouraged a kind of pan-Islamic identity, uh, thinking that perhaps Muslims could become westernized without having to abandon their Islamic faith. And, and they could do this by being, for example, educated in the United States, educated in Philippine universities, exposed to Western ideas through local public schooling. Uh, there's a startling, re, uh, remarkable resonance with what's going on in Iraq right now, the idea that you don't have to get rid of Islam, you just have to make Islam more recognizably Western, more recognizably, recognizably open to, to democratic so institutions. This is American cultural exactly, exactly. ignorance and miscalculation. Exactly. 
exactly. It's, it, it's the whole idea of Americanizing Islam and making it more acceptable. So there's this sort of religious uh, pluralist vision that, that informed American colonialism in the Philippines that had enormous impact uh, among the Muslims in the Philippines. And what happened was that many of these Muslims, indeed, particularly the sons, uh, and in some cases the daughters of local elites, did take advantage of scholarships and so forth. And many of them developed close uh, relationships as clients to American colonial officials and became active parts of the American colonial uh, government uh, and, and to a certain extent became integrated in, in uh, the sort of process of nation building uh, in the Philippines. Uh, and it was only much later on uh, after World War II that Muslims began to feel uh, terribly disaffected and began to think of themselves not just as a unified people but a unified people that had to separate themselves from the, from, the, from the existing Philippine yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go back to Indonesia a bit and this issue of gender and Islam there. Now you've written some very interesting things about uh, women in, in, in Indonesia adopting this veil and adopting more intense forms of Islamic practice. Why do they do that? And the women you talked about are, are university women, educated, modern women it seems. So why would a modern woman want to do something which from the point of view of us here seems a pre-modern thing to do? Right. Well, this is something that I've had an interest in for some time. Um, when I initially went to Indonesia in the early 1980s, uh, very few women were wearing Islamic dress. Um, and then when I returned in the mid-80s, I saw that this was starting to become a more widespread phenomenon. And um, I had a sort of typically American reaction to this, which was, um, oh, you know, someone must be forcing these women to do this. You know, why would a woman switch from wearing you know, jeans and T-shirts or Western-style dresses to, you know, fully covering herself. Um, they don't cover their faces for the most part, uh, but they, they cover their heads and wear long sleeve dresses um, or tunics and pants. Um, and uh, so I began to do some research on this and found that, in fact, uh, many of the women who were switching to wearing Islamic dress were, in fact, very modern women, um, very well-educated and very thoughtful women. And um, they were quite insistent that this was something that they were doing of their own accord. In, in fact, they said that in order for it to have any meaning, um, religiously or socially, that it had to be something that came from their own free will. And um, they saw this as a, a sign of Islamic identity. Um, it, it, you know, made a clear statement about who they were, that they were, were Muslims. Um, and they didn't see this as being out of keeping with a modern lifestyle. You know, they continued to go to college. Um, many of them expected to work and have careers after they graduated. Uh, many of them hoped to continue working after they had children. So this wasn't something that they saw as an impediment to being sort of modern women in the modern world. Um, but it was a very, um, it was a very clear sign of identity. They, they said, um, you know, they weren't slaves to the Western fashion movement anymore and that they could you know, sort of be good modern women and still wear so this style of dress. It's not an anti-modern movement. It's really a kind of an alternative modern it's movement. It's an alternative too. modern movement, yes. In the Philippines, you don't have anything quite like that, but you do have a strange relationship with modernity, where it's not exactly anti-modernity, but also kind of an alternative vision of modernity too, right? Uh, one of the things that characterizes uh, the, the, the cultural dynamic, the political and cultural dynamic in the Philippines is this tension between, on the one hand, uh, sort of the attempt to purify Islamic faith, on the other hand, 
the attempt to appeal to uh, the wider populace that tend to regard attempts at purification with enormous amounts of ambivalence uh, because of the fact that historically Islam has had a very superficial impact on the Philippines. There continues to exist today uh, lots and lots of very mixed religious practices, syncretic, which you know what people call syncretic religious practices, and people are really invested in the continuation of certain kinds of ritual practices. Uh, so there's there's uh, attempts to resist uh, on, on the level of the masses, as it were, uh, attempts to resist a sort of imposition of a more purified notion of Islam. So there's this t- interesting tension between Puritanism and populism, as it were. Uh, on the other hand, people tend to uh, 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 respond favorably at certain moments to the appeal of lamas, particularly those that have been educated in the Middle East, uh, for more purified Islam because they see this kind of Islam as a way of protecting them, as a way of, uh, in some ways, keeping them safe from the day-to-day depredations that they experience from the Philippine state that they regard right now as uh, the successor of the American colonizers. So, Let's try to apply this now to uh, current events. Uh, you know, in the newspapers, uh, there's a trial going on right now in Indonesia uh, of the people who allegedly were behind these bombing in, in a nightclub in Bali, who belonged apparently to a radical Islamic movement. Um, the Moro Islamic National Liberation Front uh, uh, bombed a marketplace a couple of weeks ago, killed at least 13 people, and the Philippine government has said it's going to crack down and give them to. Uh, June 1st uh, to desist and so forth. Um, Indonesian military has moved in two days ago into the province of Aceh in a major military assault. So all of a sudden, both Indonesia and the Philippines are uh, coming apart with violence, uh, military intervention, uh, which is connected at least in some way, maybe not totally, but with certain aspects of a revived you know, Islam. Uh, and the United States, of course, is moving in and seeing this as part of the front in the war on terror. So taking what you've been saying so far, can you help us to understand why and how this is happening right now? Muslim extremists in Indonesia are really a very small minority of the population, and that um, the majority of the population con- continues to be fairly moderate. Um, in, you know, even if they're devout Muslims, they don't support... Uh, violence in the name of religion. They find it as abhorrent as we do for the most part. Um, But there are, you know, a small number of um, of radical Muslims in Indonesia who have begun carrying out acts of violence. Um, Now this actually predates the Bali bombings. Um, There's been, there have been a a series of bombings of churches um, in particular, but also um, other places since the Suharto regime fell in 1998. And the Suharto regime was, um, it was a military dictatorship and it did not uh, tolerate any um, sort of public forms of um, Islamic radicalism at all. In fact, it cracked down very hard on people who had perceived as, um, as furthering a, a radical Islamic agenda. Um, after the regime fell, these groups were um, able to proliferate, become somewhat more public, and outspoken, um, and you know they've they've begun to um, carry out some of these acts. But I think that we need to be careful about you know seeing this as some sort of a um, sort of an organized you know world plot. Um, that you know it's a mistake I think to look at the Bali bombings, for example, as being um, part of a master plot by Al Qaeda to insinuate itself into various parts of the world. 
these sorts of events have to be understood in their national context. Sure. And, you know, if there is any linkage with al-Qaeda and, and the kind of um, international terrorism, I think it's, these are very, um, they're very small linkages. They're, they're, they're limited linkages. And what's, what's going on still has to be understood primarily in the national context of Indonesia rather than in a kind of global context or um, sort of as, as an attack on the West, I think. Is it the same in the I, Philippines, I you think? think? I, I think uh, many of the things that Suzanne said about Indonesia could be also be said in the Philippines. Certainly there's been evidence of some al-Qaeda activity, uh, but it seems to me that the connection with uh, the separatist Muslim movements like uh, the Moro Islamic National Liberation uh, or the much older Muslim uh, Moro National Liberation Front, uh, the, the connections between them and al-Qaeda have tended to be much more uh, fractious and adventitious. In other words, there's no systematic linkages uh, between these groups. Also, there have been some, for example, Filipino Muslims that uh, have had a history of uh, becoming Mujahideens, fighting, for example, in Afghanistan. Uh, some, of the, some of the rebel leaders, for example, uh, draw from that ex experience of having spent time uh, in, in Afghanistan. A number of, of the more radical ulamas in Mindanao have uh, had exposure, for example, with uh, the movements in Egypt and Cairo uh, and in Lahore in Pakistan, uh, where they have regular contacts. But I think, by and large, it's important to emphasize the national context of these movements. Um, and the question of terrorism itself is very tricky, as you know, because uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, or woman for that matter. And, and, and as far as uh, uh, the MILF, for example... Uh, in, What's in, the Moral National Liberation Front? The, the Moral National Liberation Front, for example. As far as they're concerned, it's, there's, there's a lot of questions as to who exactly is causing these bombings. Officially, the MILF uh, support peace talks Officially, they support a series of agreements uh, that were fostered in 1976 in Tripoli under the sponsorship of Muammar Gaddafi when Marcos was still in power in the Philippines that was meant to grant uh, a certain amount of autonomy to the region and, and foster a certain amount of economic development. So officially, therefore, in negotiation, when these bombings occur, it's not entirely clear who's causing these bombings. Uh, some people have suspected that they may have been fostered by the military, for example, under the pay of certain Christian groups that have a vested interest in not having a settlement because it will work against their interest. So uh, the picture is very, very fuzzy at this point as to who exactly is causing these bombings and whether or not they're even terrorists. So you have all these local conflicts, which uh, to some degree have to do with religious conflict, but to another degree have to do with general dissatisfaction with being part yes, of, absolutely. for instance, the Philippine absolutely. polity, absolutely. And so separatist movements, incipient exactly. kinds of exactly. civil war, civil exactly. unrest. Exactly. But, um, you know, during the Cold War, uh, U.S. intervened in all sorts of countries uh, with the belief that these local conflicts were all about the global struggle between communism and the free world. And I'm afraid the U.S. is also planning to do similar kinds of things in both the Philippines and Indonesia, at least we've said we are, right? Now, uh, what would be the consequences, do you think, of, of, of doing that kind of thing, of intervening in local religious and ethnic and you know, political disputes in the name of some sort of global war on terrorism? Do you think this would uh, help or, or hinder peaceful resolution of the matter? Well, I think, um, you know, I think there's a real danger that um, by intervening in what are um, 
often sort of ethnic separatist movements um, and sort of seeing them as a kind of um, Islamic terror rather than seeing them for what they are and, and understanding their history, um, I, you know, I think there's a real danger in this. Um, the, I think there's going to be a tendency for the United States to look the other way when um, national governments in Indonesia or the Philippines um, carry out human rights abuses, for example, in these areas. Um, there's going to be a tendency to look the other way because um, there's going to be the United States government wants to support these national governments. These are our allies, um, the Indonesian government and the Philippine government, and they want to support them in their efforts against um, separatist movements and against what they see as a kind of um, you know international terror. In the Indonesian military has been pretty heavy-handed in. Uh putting down these movements, too, as is the Philippine military. Absolutely. absolutely. And the problem with the Philippine military, of course, is it's perennially racked by corruption. To, you, to, to assume that the Philippine military acts in the interests of the Filipino people is, is to make a broad assumption, at, at the very least. You know, so, so there's some question as to how effective the counter-terrorist uh, uh, measures being taken by the present government w- will be. As, as you know, as we speak today, the president of the Philippines, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, is in the White House, having been only the third uh, national leader uh, hosted by uh, George Bush. Uh, and uh, he's promised all sorts of military assistance and development assistance to the Philippine state. The problem, of course, is the Philippine state itself has an extremely difficult time of getting its act together, uh, and it's not entirely clear who's in control of military operations there. Recent reports have, have shown, for example, that uh, one of the reasons why uh, the military can't complete its operations against the rebels is because uh, certain elements of the military are even supplying arms to the rebels, that they're taking part in the ransom kidnapping and ransom deals uh, that are going on down there. So the situation of military corruption and brutality is uh, extremely serious. Uh, In that sense, the Philippines and Indonesia share many things in common uh, where the military involvement in all this is concerned. Are there similar issues in in Indonesia? Yes. um, In the last few days, the Indonesian military has uh, invaded Aceh. It's trying to put down a separatist movement. Um, This movement's been going on since 1976. More than 10,000 people have died there. And um, it really doesn't have to do with, uh, with Islam. You know, this is not something, it's, Islam is not at the root of it. What's at the root of it is um, that the Indonesian government has been trying to siphon off resources from Aceh. It's, it's a very oil-rich um, province. It's, it's rich in um, natural gas. And uh, for a long time, um, Acehese have wanted to many Achenese have wanted to be separate from the Indonesian state, and so um, the government is now going in in the name of working against terrorism, but in fact um, it 's really in the Indonesian government 's interest to keep those resources as part of Indonesia. Yeah. Yeah, the developments in the last couple of days have been extremely disturbing because I think what's happened is that uh, both Megawati Sukarnapurdi in Indonesia and Gloria Makapagal Arroyo in the Philippines have decided to follow the example of the United States and employ what for all intents and purposes is their own version of shock and awe, uh, marshalling as much military might uh, uh, to you know, you know, quickly quell uh, what they perceive are intractable uh, re- uh, rebel forces rather than continue. I think the more complicated, but I think the more necessary uh, uh, process of negotiation that's been going on for several years uh, in both countries. So both places represent a kind of a new use of, of raw force to yes. deal with problems that yes. are rooted partly in culture, partly religion, partly ethnicity. And, and certainly economy as well. And, yeah. and the economy. Yeah, yeah. And this seems to be something that's going on around the world. And we're going to see, I guess, to what extent force can 
solve these problems, uh, which you say are much more complicated than that. This is, this is what makes the situation, I think, in Indonesia and the Philippines so interesting because it gives us pause uh, whenever we talk about the war on terror and whenever we think about who the real terrorists are to a certain extent in which uh, the state, certainly the national state in both countries, um, with the eager and anxious sponsorship of the United States, uh, must also find themselves also in a position of having to be, as it were, uh, terrorists against their own people uh, in order to quell what they think of are incidents of terrorism. So uh, terrorism is not the monopoly of a particular group, uh, I think. And, and this, is what one of the, this is what recent events have sort of been, been showing us. Well, this is an ongoing story. Yes. Uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about uh, maybe a year from now. But uh, for now, thank you both very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's our program for tonight. Thank you all for joining us on Viewpoint Asia. I'm Richard Madsen. Good night.